We're going to just do a little bit of a run through some of the early verses in 1 Timothy. And the first place we got to go look at that, first of all, is to see how Paul went on his missionary trips. And we're going to start in Galatians um, chapter 1 and just read Paul's account of how he got saved, what happened to him, and then uh, how he ended up going on these missionary trips. So, starting with the Apostle Paul, formerly known as the persecutor Saul, and just verses uh, 11 through 2.10. So, but I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. I had advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God, who separated me from a mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son to me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles... I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went to Arabia, returned again to Damascus, and then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter, remained with him fifteen days, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And now concerning the things which I write to you indeed, before God, I do not lie. Afterward, I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, And I was uh, unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But they were hearing only he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith, which he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God in me. And then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them the gospel, which I preached among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation lest by any means I might have run or had run in vain. And yet not even Titus, who is with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And this will come into view as we go through this. But And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you But from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seem to be something added nothing to me. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And so and when James, Cephas, John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived that the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles, and they to the circumcised. And they desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. So we see just in the beginnings Paul's salvation. He gives it by his own account. Um, And the early... Uh, parts of Acts, I think it's Acts 9, would, you could refer that uh, when Dwight goes through that. That's where he's talking about the road to Damascus experience. Um, Paul had three missionary trips. If you want to, we'll have kind of a little time in Acts chapters 13 through 20. 
Uh, we're not going to look at all of them. I'll have you turn to 14.23 in a little bit, and 16.1 uh, through 5. But on his first trip, starting in Acts 13 through 14, Paul and Barnabas set out from Antioch in Syria. There's two Antiochs, don't get them confused. There's one in Syria. And preached Christ in the synagogues and wherever he could, in Cyprus, Pamphylia, Perga, and then in Antioch, which is Pisidia. So there's two Antiochs. Many were saved of the Jews and of the Gentiles. Now that made the Jews jealous, made them envious. And so they began to stir up everything there, and, and they chased Paul out. So they ran him out, and he goes on to Iconium. And again, Jews and Greeks are saved, and they spend a long time there. But eventually, violence breaks out, and they go to the area of Lystra and Derbe. And if you look on the, on the map, um, uh, on this first missionary trip, if you look over to the area right under where it says Asia Minor, there's a little cluster of three uh, towns, Iconium and Lystra and Derby. Now that's where Timothy is from. That's his, his hometown where he was from. Primarily, I believe it was Lystra, but he was known well in Iconium and Lystra. We'll see later on. So Paul doesn't necessarily see Timothy at this time, but Timothy probably sees Paul and what goes on there, and how he healed a lame man from birth. And all these locals started to call out on Paul and, and say, hey, you know, Paul and Barnabas, they're gods. Let's start sacrificing to these guys. And so Paul has to correct all of that. And, uh, but then some of the Jews uh, from Antioch and Pisidia and Iconium followed them now to Lystra and rallied everybody again to stone them and drag them out of town. And so uh, they made their way back uh, through, or they, from there they went on to uh, uh, Derby, and many disciples were saved there as well. So they're all kind of close together. And from Derby in uh, this stretch through Acts 13 and 14, he begins to trail back now and go through these towns. And as he's going back, if you look at Acts 14, 23, one thing you want to notice, because it's significant to the book of Timothy, it says he went back through each of these towns where many had gotten saved. And he appoints elders. Uh, verses, uh, verse 23. Oh, I'm in the wrong spot. So they, when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And so it's, it's a part of what Timothy is going to be primarily about. We'll see his purpose for writing. But so he appoints elders in every city, and now he goes back, while back in Antioch in Syria, where he began, a dispute breaks out there. He had gone to the circumcision, and, um, and you remember uh, he'd gone to the Gentiles now, and a lot of them were getting saved. But it breaks out this dispute between the, the Jews and Paul. Well, this, these Gentiles, they need to get circumcised. And so there's a big dispute. So then they go on down to Jerusalem to meet up with the elders and with the apostles, and um, James eventually writes him a letter and uh, says, you know, take this along with you to the Gentiles. We're not going to impose circumcision on them. And uh, he writes that in a letter, and he also sends along a couple guys with him. And then thus begins Paul's second journey, his second missionary trip, which is Acts 15 through 18, as we continue to summarize. 
So now Paul, Silas, and Mark go up through Antioch in Syria, and by land this time. Previously they went over to Cyprus by boat and on. This time by land, and kind of go up and over the mountains there a little bit. Actually, this one doesn't show the mountains, but as you go north out of uh, uh, Antioch, uh, by Syria, it kind of gets up into the mountains, and it's interesting along there, there's also Tarsus, where Paul was from. But he keeps on going up and through, right back to that same little little uh, bundle of small towns there, Derby and Lystra. And then we get to Acts 16, and we'll look there, verses 1 through 5. So then he came to Derby and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, a son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. And he was well spoken of the, of the brethren. Keep a little list in your mind of everything that's said about Timothy. Um, well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. So Paul wanted to have him go on with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep which were determined by the apostles and the elders at Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number. So Timothy is going along with Paul now. He's going from town to town. He sees this letter from James. He understands that the, uh, the circumcision is not required of the Gentiles, yet he was for the sake of the Jews because he was going to be going along with Paul. And so we have his second trip, uh, when uh, we see Timothy already was a disciple. Now we read elsewhere and we'll see that uh, Timothy was brought up in the Lord by his grandmother and his mother, mother being Jewish. So he knew that uh, he knew the word, he knew the scripture, he knew the Old Testament. But then when Paul went through in that earlier trip, he saw what took place. And now he comes back and here's Timothy, a disciple, and he had seen everything that Paul had done. So he takes them along, being well spoken of by the brethren. Travels with him. They they go through uh, Macedonia. If you look at the map, that's way over to the to the left, crossing the Aegean Sea, going into Macedonia. Comes back through uh, Thessalonica, Berea, eventually Athens, and Corinth for a half a year. For a while there, uh, Timothy is separated. He stays back because Paul was chased out and uh, goes on to uh, uh, Ephesus. And when he goes to Ephesus, this is the first mention on this missionary trip um, of Ephesus in the Bible. And Timothy, all the rest, he was just going there on his way back to Jerusalem. Paul was on a mission, he had to get back to Jerusalem. And so all the rest of these guys uh, stay there in Ephesus while Paul travels back, probably Luke with him, keeping uh, his account of the book of Acts. Now, and again, this is a good read if you like. Just go ahead and read through it. That's uh, seven chapters in Acts. It uh, gives you more detail on all these things I've talked about. There's a couple of interesting things we'll mention about Ephesus. His third trip now is Acts 18, 23 through 20. And it just says he heads out along that same route, that uh, second trip. And he heads off to Ephesus, though. And he stayed there two years And it says, the word spread throughout what was then Asia and Macedonia, which today is now Turkey and Greece. And so just from being stationed or being working out of Ephesus for two years, word spread. And it spread throughout that whole region. 
And um, what we learn about Ephesus from this passage is some disciples had only been baptized in John's repentance when Paul got to Ephesus. He went specifically to go see these guys. Um, but they had not yet received the Holy Spirit. They had been baptized into repentance, and they were seeking to walk in repentance, but they hadn't been baptized in the Holy Spirit. And then when Paul said that to them, they were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke in tongues, and they prophesied. Many were healed. Evil spirits went out from them. Some Jews that were exorcists, and another little tidbit about Ephesus, there were some Jews there that were exorcists, tried to cast out this demon um, by Jesus who Paul preaches. You know, and they begin to uh, try and do some works that they can be seen, that they can be known. And this demon says back to him, and says, well, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? And again, you can read this account for yourself, but the demon-possessed man leaps on these guys and leaves them all wounded and fleeing because, you know, they, they didn't know the Lord. Word of all this now spreads fear, and fear falls on all of them. And the Lord Jesus was magnified, it says. Um, many believed, many began to confess and show their deeds, that, you know, their sin. And um, there was this big book burning um, that took place. They burned the books of magic. This uh, word magic means curious arts. And it says worth 50,000 pieces of silver. I don't know what that is in today's money, but that's a, probably a big chunk. Just books, just, just these ways of uh, doing sorcery and these uh, tricks and, and things. Now they had also in Ephesus, a little another thing about Ephesus here is they had this goddess Diana. Well, Diana was the fertility god and, and uh, she had many, many, uh, or they had, you know, she was nothing, uh, had many temple prostitutes and so as these uh, one of these um, little idol makers one of these little shrine makers you know they'd have their little shrines for Diana well he starts losing income because people are getting saved and so he's complaining to all of his fellow silversmiths about this and um, you know they didn't really care about that but then he starts saying yeah but it's Diana. They're coming after Diana. Well, that got their attention because obviously here go all the no more working girls that they, you know, they were getting upset about that. And so it's interesting when you read through, it says that. Now, as we look at um, Acts 19, just want to look at verses 23 through 28. Actually, that was the passage I just talked about. Let's go to verse 20, and we're going to go from 17 all the way to 38. After three months, um, things settled down there, and after uh, Paul went to Macedonia, and after three months, uh, came back just to Troas, which is a little near Ephesus, just north of there a ways. And he, at that time, called for the elders from Ephesus to come up. And we pick it up in verse 17 and read through to the end of the chapter as an account here. So from Miletus, um, he sailed from Troas down to Miletus and did not go to Ephesus. But he, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I have lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, 
with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly from house to house, testifying to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. And see now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing things that will happen to me, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that the chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself. Boy, that's a good one, right? For, our, for things we go through, even the things we're going through today. Um, it's a good one for the refrigerator. But none of these things move me. And more so than the refrigerator. I, you know I throw that out there more than any reason so that you have it in front of you. But more than anything, that's in your hearts, you know. Uh, none of these things move me. I, I don't count my life dear. And, uh, you know, here's the thing we're going to talk about this morning. The ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. And here's the key. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among, with, among you, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. That's First Timothy. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Verse 30 is rather troubling. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn every one night and day with tears. So now, brethren, I commend you to God, to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up, give you an inheritance among all who are sanctified. I have, not covet, or I have coveted no one's silver or gold, even when there's 50,000 pieces of silver sitting there in that book burning. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who are with me. I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and they wept freely and fell on his Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more, and they accompanied him to the ship. Timothy, a little bit more about Timothy. 1 Corinthians 4, if you'd like to turn there just a little bit off to the right. That was the church at Ephesus. That was the elders. Timothy was among those elders when he, he departed by boat. He warned them about the wolves, even those that might be among him, among them, I should say. Among Timothy and his other elders, there would be some. First Corinthians 4, we hear what Paul has to say about Timothy when he's writing these letters much later on. And Timothy's carrying on the work uh, chapter 4, verses 14 through 17. says, I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children I warn you. Am I in the right one? Yes. Um, For though you might have 10,000 instructions in Christ, 
yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. Therefore I urge you, imitate me. And for this reason I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and my faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. Paul's counting on Timothy to be able to say and do everything that he said and did. He's counting on Timothy to uh, represent him exactly as he represented the Lord. And he could say literally of him, that's what is happening. If you go to chapter 16 in 1 Corinthians, verses uh, 8 through 11, it says uh, he's going to tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost. Paul's back in Ephesus writing to the Corinthians. For a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. And if Timothy comes, see that he may be with you without fear, for he does the work of the Lord as I do also. Therefore, let no one despise him, but send him on his jury in peace, that he may come to me, for I am writing, or waiting for him with the brethren. So he also commends Timothy to them, and that they, they would just be welcoming to Timothy as, as they were to Paul, that they would see Timothy as they saw Paul with the same authority, with the same teaching, and as we'll see, with the same doctrine. And that's important. If you want to go again to the left, to Philippians, and here we have quite the testimony by Paul of the character of Timothy. Philippians 2, 17 through 24. It says, yes, and if I am being poured out, out as a drink offering on the sacrifice uh, in, the, in the service of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I may also be encouraged when I know your state. He's sending out an ambassador, sending out a, uh, someone who can report back. For I have no one like-minded, that add to your list about Timothy, who will sincerely care for your state. That goes on that list about Timothy. For all seek their own, not Timothy, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. Well, Timothy does seek the things of Christ Jesus. But you know his proven character, that as a son with his father, he served me in the gospel. Therefore, I hope to send him at once, as soon as I see how it goes with me, but I trust in the Lord that I myself will come to you shortly. Like-minded, sincerely cares, does not seek his own, but seeks the things of Jesus Christ. And proven character, he says about him, serves as a son to his father in the gospel. Now let's go back and read what Paul read for us earlier. Hopefully you see a little of the context. This is much later on. Paul is writing to Timothy after he had already been in prison once in Rome. And um, many of the uh, earlier, like Galatians and all, was written from Ephesus when he was out earlier on. But uh, this is probably four or five years later than he had written to the Ephesians, where Timothy was the elder at the time. And now he's writing again. Verses 1 through 11, we'll reread it. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope, to Timothy, a true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father 
in the Lord Christ and in, in Jesus Christ our Lord. As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. Now the purpose of the commandment is love, from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and a sincere faith, from which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, which is interesting, understanding neither what they say nor the things that they affirm. Well, the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for the righteous person, but for the the lawless, the insubordinate, the ungodly, the sinners, the unholy, profane, murderers, of fathers, murderers of mothers, manslayers, fornicators, sodomites, kidnappers, liars, perjurers. And if there's any other thing, this is kind of interesting, anything that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which is committed to my trust. So first of all, how does Paul describe himself? An apostle of Jesus Christ. But it's by the commandment of the Lord. It's not necessarily that he says, I just want to go be an apostle. Goes out and goes to apostle school. And, uh, and just has his plan for his life is going to be being an apostle. Well, it's by God's commandment. It wasn't by his own verition. Um, and notice he says it's by the commandment of God, our Savior. And it's by the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. We saw how Paul became an apostle back in Galatians. And there's more in, in verses 12 after, uh, for another time. But it comes down to Paul is doing what God, our Savior, and Jesus, our hope, commanded him to do. He's doing what he's simply been given to do. And these things only God can do in him and through him. And it's an encouragement to us to want to do just what God's given us to do. Sometimes we lay on ourselves every possible thing that we see on the uh, Christian broadcasting system and we have to donate everything to every single one or we have to be involved with every single thing. And yet it's probably better to just, not necessarily the tube so much, but the people who are in your life, who God sets before you, the people who he puts in your path, the people you work with. You know, These are the ones he's given you to do something. And so for the... the uh, the mission, the ministry that we would have is the same. He's only doing what he's been given to do. Now, God our Savior, oftentimes as Christians, we get just living our Christian lives and doing Christian things and kind of becomes a culture or maybe a social purpose, forgetting we're sinners. And so when we think about the Lord, when we think about God, you know, oftentimes uh, we forget. But we need to remember that we are sinners that needed a Savior, and that Jesus Christ is our hope, and that we have no ability in ourselves, even with the help of the rest of our village that we should be taking all this help from, to live a righteous life before God? No. We're hopeless. We're helpless without him. Christ Jesus is our hope. I remembered uh, Ricky Lias was a Christian musician back in the, what, 80s, 70s, maybe, and you may have heard of him. He had a song that I just loved. And the main line, he would just get gritty when he was singing. It says, if I would, I could save myself. Uh, if I could, I would save myself. But I wouldn't need you like I do. And it's so true. If we could, but we can't, right? And um, 
Going to verse 2 in Timothy. He says, Timothy, a true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. We saw parts, uh, Paul's heart towards Timothy as a father to his most trusted son. But it's interesting, every letter or every conversation we have, it starts out with a tone. kind of begins with a tone, doesn't it? You know, you can, somebody walks in the room and they want to say something. Sometimes you can see it all over their face. Part, Paul starts this letter with a tone. And it's a frame of mind, eventually, to take it in the direction he wants to go. What's that tone? Grace, mercy, peace. You know, remember that. He gave only what he was given to do. And so he says, um, all the glory goes to God, our Father. All the glory goes to Lord Jesus. But he also has a purpose for writing. And we're going to camp out here a little bit on verse 3. Verse 3, As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. He urged. Something's urgent here. He charged him. If you just look over to verse 18, this charge I commit to you, wage good warfare. Uh, If you look to the next page, chapter 6, verses 12 and 13 He says, I fight the good fight. Lay hold on eternal life to which you are also called and have a confession and good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Verse 13, I urge in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate. And in chapter 20, he says, O Timothy, exclamation point, guard which was committed to your trust. Avoid the profane and idle babblings, the contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. So this is urgent. Something's going on that Paul has, you know, his tone is grace. His tone is mercy. His tone is peace. But something is urgent on Paul's mind. Something's going on. Well, what is it about? What's this whole book about? He says, let them teach no other doctrine. Now, every time someone says doctrine, eyes glaze over. You know, this is two old guys sitting in a, study some old professors that are talking about some high and lofty thing and uh, we kind of go doctrine okay well really the word doctrine simply means teaching instruction and the precepts that are laid down that's all doctrine is simply just teaching doctrine is there are good doctrines um we'll we'll talk about that it's funny uh well let's go anytime you look at a at a book You want to read through the whole thing and you want to look for a verse in that book that maybe would be the key verse that might give you what is the purpose for writing this book. And we kind of went through a lot in in all that already, what was going on in Ephesus. But if you want to look at chapter 3, you always got a heads up on that when the author of the letter comes right out and says, I wrote this to you because. (laughs) Then you you pretty much have the, the reason why he wrote, right? And so chapter 3, verses um, 14 through 16, gives us the whole umbrella, gives us the whole context, the whole foundation for everything he's saying in Timothy, 1 Timothy. These things I write to you, plainly said, though I have hope to come to you shortly, but if I am delayed, I write this, that you may know how 
you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. That's why he's writing. Well, the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness, and God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up in glory. When you want to know what a book is about, you look and see if you can find a verse that says, why did he write? He wrote this book so that Timothy would know how a person ought to conduct themselves in the body of Christ. And we can have that context for everything that's here. And we've got to remember the tone of the letter. It's grace and mercy and peace. The mystery of godliness. Well, first of all, he talks about doctrine. Well, first of all, he talks about the reason. That's where we're starting off. So he knows one ought to conduct himself. Now he says the house of God. He calls it the, the, the church of the living God. The pillar and the ground of truth. We're talking about a household. Well, you all know what some households look like with the fighting and with the complaining and the kids are out of control and there's lying and cheating and fights and, and uh, all kinds of misbehaving. So you see that house. Is that where you want to go for for? You know, the truth? Is that where you want to go to find uh, the truth about God? Everything you want to learn about the living God? You know, the house that he's talking about is us. He's talking about the church. You know, and so the, the, I guess the application is obvious. You know, should a fellowship of believers look like that? Is that where people are going to go for their answers? Now, the doctrine he's talking about is the mystery of godliness in, in uh, 3 verse 16. Mystery of godliness. And there's a few verses to go to here starting in 1st, or in, not 1st John, but the Gospel of John, chapter 1. God manifested in the flesh. We're talking about doctrine. Don't let your eyes glaze over. We're talking about just teaching. But it's the doctrine of the Lord. It's his word. John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That's what we're teaching here. That's doctrine. That's the instruction. Verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, and the glory as of the only begotten Father, full of grace. Um, begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In Galatians, we're talking about God manifested in the flesh. Galatians 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. So we're seeing more of that doctrine being established. He's the Son of God, born of a woman. Matthew 1, if you can go back. Sorry to make you turn so much, I could have just read that one. Maybe 16 and 17, we'll back up a little bit. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry. And he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all his districts from two years old and under, according to the time which was determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet. A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. 
And now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph. And I think I had this verse in the wrong place because it's going to have to do with seen by angels. But we'll, now we'll get a little ahead of time. Um, appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go out of the land of Israel. For those who sought the young child are dead. Then he arose, took the child and his mother, and came to the land of Israel. When he had heard that um, Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And after being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside to the region of Galilee, and he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled that was spoken by the prophets. He is called a Nazarene. Um, there is no Matthew 1, verse 25. I might have the wrong... Oh, you know what? I'm in chapter 2 all this while, aren't I? You guys are probably wondering about that. <laughs> okay, well, shy of that, let's just do 18 through 25 real quick. Uh, now, the birth of Jesus Christ uh, was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, you know, born in the flesh. Really, this is the passage. I'm going to let you just have it in your notes. Um, but uh, clearly... It's the, it's the scriptural fulfillment of God being manifest in the flesh. This is doctrine. These are things you want to have at the core. Many people talk about the peripherals of doctrine, the things at the edge that maybe they can uh, you know, play around with, um, things that aren't necessarily paramount to salvation. But there's got to be a core doctrine. There's got to be the central things that, uh, that uh, a true believer has. Hebrews 2, verses 14 through 18 is important. Inasmuch as children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed he does not give aid to the angels, but he does give aid to to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, this is what's important, in all things he had to be made like his brethren, you know, manifest in the flesh, that he might be merciful and a faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are being tempted. The reason he is made in the flesh is that because we're flesh, that he could be tempted like we were tempted, and that he would be without spot and blameless. The word propitiation is one of them words that you use around the shop every day, right? Isn't that something everybody knows? Um, propitiation is translated the same in the, the Greek lexicon of the Old Testament. And it's translated mercy seat. So when you think of propitiation, Jesus is that propitiation for us? The Shekinah glory of God was above the ark, right? And the cherubim were on the four corners, and they were looking at the top of the, the lid of that ark. Well, that was the mercy seat, that top of that lid. That's where the sacrifices took place. And so a holy God would see that sacrifice. Well, you open that lid, and you see what's inside? Well, that's the law. If you open that lid without the sacrifice, you die. There's a holy God, there's the law, and you're in the middle of that? You don't survive. And so Jesus now is that propitiation. So whenever you see that word propitiation, it simply means mercy seat. The next key to godliness, which is doctrine, 
is in uh, Timothy 3 was Matthew 3, 16 and 17. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. You know, a lot of people have their their desire when they get to be with the Lord. What, what do they want to go and see first? And uh, I think I'd like to go see this. You know, when we get there to see the replay. When the Spirit came from heaven. Luke 4, just a few pages to the left. When the Spirit came, landed on him, and then they heard that voice, this is my son. That changed everything. Luke 4, verses 1 and 2, and then we'll read 14. We're talking about justified in the Spirit. Back in Timothy 3. Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, and being tempted for 40 days by the devil. In those days he ate nothing, and afterward, when they had ended, he was hungry. These 40 days were over with. He was hungry, and, and the devil tempts him. But down in verse 14, speaking of being justified in the Spirit, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went out through all the surrounding region. So he would have doctrine. God manifested in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen by angels. And that's where we were a little bit earlier, when the angels saw the heavenly host singing glory to God in the highest on earth, peace, goodwill towards men. When tempted in the wilderness, he was ministered to by angels. The next one is in uh, 1 Timothy 3.15 or 16 is, preached among the Gentiles. And Matthew 28 says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And we just saw Paul's missionary journeys He's preached among the Gentiles. And he's telling Timothy, this is fulfillment, prophecy. This is doctrine. This is teaching. This is good instruction. Also in the list, he was believed on in the world. And we saw that in Paul's journeys. And then it says he was received up in glory. And we can go to Acts uh, chapter 1. And you all know the, test of the, the story, uh, the testimony. But these guys were eyewitnesses. And we're going to talk a little bit about eyewitnesses when it comes to doctrine and good teaching. In Acts chapter 1, it says, Now when he had spoken these things, verse 9, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men standing by them in white apparel, who also said, Well, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven and we cannot wait. This is what we're waiting for. We're waiting for him to return. In the same way he went up into heaven, he's going to return in the clouds and take us with him. And this is that, uh, you know, this is the doctrine, you know, seen, received up in glory. Now, so if you go back to Timothy 3.15, he's talking about godliness. And 16, the purpose for his writing, 
so that they know how they ought to conduct themselves. That's what Timothy's all about. And when he's talking about conducting himself, he talks about, well, great is this controversy. And he says, well, without controversy, great is the mystery, is what I meant to say. This mystery of godliness. And we talked about all these things that he says are godliness. Well, our godliness, all that we do for the Lord, all that we uh, read, all that we say, the lives that we live, these godly lives, it's about a person. Look at it's God manifested in the flesh in the list. It's not about religion. It's not about some obligation that we have, some tradition of men that we keep. And it's so important to realize he's simply saying in verse 16, great is this mystery of godliness, our godliness. It's about a person. It's about Jesus Christ. And so it's so hard to let go of the things that we know, traditions of men, those obligations. And so we want to always remember that it's about Jesus and about the person of Jesus Christ and not some religion, some obligation. Now, he's also urgent about these guys back in verse 3, chapter 1, that they, that they stop teaching other doctrine. Well, the word teaching other doctrine is really just one word in the Greek. It's deviate from the truth is what it means. Same if you want to flip a page to chapter 6, verse 3. It says, if anyone teaches otherwise, same word. If anybody teaches otherwise and does not consent to, in other words, contrasting what? Well, to wholesome words. Wholesome words is good doctrine. If you're going to teach otherwise, it's unwholesome words. So what is he saying is good doctrine? Wholesome words. Even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which accords with godliness. And so godliness is coming up here again. There is a doctrine. Uh, It's everything that Jesus said, the teaching, the instructions, the precepts that are laid out. The acts of the apostle. And as they were led and empowered by the Holy Spirit, that's good doctrine. That's good teaching what he's talking about here. And then by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the letters that Paul wrote, that James wrote, that John wrote, Peter, and uh, the, the Gospels that Luke and Matthew and Mark, and um, you know that they wrote, these are all inspired by God, inspired by the Holy Spirit. These are all good teachings, good doctrine, when he's talking about doctrine. Well, there's also deceptive doctrine. Doctrine is one thing. You know, it's just teaching, just instructions. There's deception. And it talks about doctrines of demons that many will follow, many do follow. And then at the end of that passage that we saw in, in chapter 1, at the very end it says, uh, verse 10 towards the end of what we were reading, it says, if there's any other thing that's contrary to sound doctrine. So you've got doctrine of demons. You've got just anything that's not of the Lord is, what does he call it? Subject to the law. It's going to come under the law. It's going to be judged. It's for the unrighteous. So if it's not about the Lord, then it's not really anything that uh, is of good doctrine. Now, there's obviously good things in the world that we can talk about, and I'm not saying that there isn't. You know, eat right food, 
you know, there's just good things. Uh, seek medical help when you need it. That's a good thing. I mean, there's, there's many good things. I'm talking about the teaching and the doctrine of the gospel. Timothy is dealing with guys here that are teaching other things. Now, what's the source in verse 4? He says, nor give heed to fables, endless genealogies, and these cause disputes or division rather than godly edification, which is in the faith, which is in faith. Godly edification, building each other up by our works of faith, by what we do. But these fables, and a couple of verses that are just going to shed some light on these, uh, it's important for us to recognize the difference between doctrine and fables. So if you want to go just to chapter 4, verse 7, the contrast in 6, if you instruct the brethren in these things, you'll be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of good doctrine, which you have carefully followed, but reject profane and old wives' fables and exercise for yourself godliness. That the, these fables, again, Second uh, Timothy four four, he's having to charge Timothy again before the Lord, who's going to judge the living and the dead when he comes. Preach the word, be ready in season, out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Interesting. Now, Titus 1.14 warns the same thing. It talks about Jewish fables specifically there, if you want to consider that. But let's turn to 1 Peter 1. What's the big deal? Just fables, just fairy tales. You know, just, uh, they're just fables. Who cares? We'll go to 1 Peter. And we go to, to chapter 1. It's important to establish good doctrine. I'm sure you know that. But maybe now you understand that it's, it's important and that it's a, uh, something that it's worth pursuing so that you have that in your pocket. You got that in your heart. You're ready to share it. First uh, Peter 1, 16 through 21. Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father... Am I in the right one? Yes. Uh, who without partiality judges according to each one's work will conduct yourself throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Well, he indeed was foredained before the foundation of the world was manifest in these last days to you, or for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. And he's talking about being eyewitnesses in Second Peter 16.21. Uh, we, for we did not follow cunningly devised fables. All right, we're talking about fables. When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we are eyewitnesses of his majesty, for we received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we talked about that. We heard this voice which came from heaven. We're with him on the holy mountain. 
And so we have a prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in the dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So they were eyewitnesses of the glory of God on the Mount of Transfiction. On the Mount of Transfiction. If you remember what it says, it said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. But if you look in Matthew 17, it says, The Father said, Hear ye him. Hear ye him. You don't need fables. You don't need endless genealogies. You know, these wannabe teachers of the law, Jewish fables it talks about in Titus. Jesus said they're just traditions of men. You know, he says, This is my beloved son, hear ye him. You know, what's the purpose of doctrine? You know, what does it all lead to? These these guys, these fables. And these doctrines of demons, idle talk. If you look in, uh, back in verse 6 of First Timothy, it all leads to idle talk. But I want to spend some time in verse 5 and uh, just talk a little bit more about what the purpose for writing was. And this was a little lengthy of a background but it really helps to put that context on Timothy and to see why Paul wrote. And it's really important for us to have that good doctrine of godliness. Yes, we're saved. Yes, we believe. What are the works of God? That we simply believe on him who he sent. That's the works of God, period, right? There's godliness that will come out of that. And that's why we talked about that, the doctrine of godliness. But what is the purpose of doctrine here in verse 5? The purpose of the commandment is love. Love. Usually when you think of doctrine, you're thinking of these guys with these uh, you know, lofty ideas. They're something way up high above us. You know, There's nothing lofty about love. Lofty is ground level. Lofty is right here, right between you and me, right between you and your neighbors and your family. That's where love hangs out. It's not some lofty doctrine. It's not some, some mysterious teaching. That's what we're all about as Christians. And notice what it says. It says, from a pure heart. The word pure there is clean. Not mixed with falsehood is what it literally means. He's saying, What's, what kind of love are we talking about? Well, love from a pure heart. Well, how are you going to unmix false teaching? That's in your heart. What are you going to do to, to get that, what's been mixed into there? Well, you're going to get into the Word. You're going to get into doctrine. Yeah, that's, that's why doctrine exists, is for love. You're going to get into God's Word. In the next one, you know, that's how you're going to get the mixture of falsehood out. Love from a good conscience. The word conscience, the soul that can distinguish between right and wrong is the Greek word there. A soul that can tell the difference between right and wrong. Where are you going to learn what's right and wrong? Well, right in the Word, right? Right from, our, right from the Scripture, right from the Lord. You know, He bears witness in us, yes, but He also bears witness in His Word, and we have His Word. It also says from a sincere faith, 
this love where it comes from. Sincere means unfeigned, undisguised. Everything is present. Everything is visible. And so where does faith come from? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. You know, the purpose of the Word of God is love. purpose of commandment is love. That's where we need to end up when it comes to anything that's being dealt with when it comes to doctrine, teaching, instruction, who Jesus was, the godliness, the mystery of godliness, the person of Jesus is why we do all the things that we do, why we walk the way we walk. Now he goes on, just to finish out that passage, some may not think they need a Savior on any given day. Well, then this law is for you. You know, who's the law for? Verses 8 through 11. The law is good if one uses it lawfully. How is it supposed to be used? Well, it's supposed to be used on the guy who doesn't think he needs the law. The guy who thinks he's doing pretty good all by himself and he has no need. Because the law is intended to show us that we're sinners. That's why the law is written. It's made for, it's not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless, the insubordinate. Are you insubordinate? Well, didn't it pinch a little last time somebody who was in charge told you what to do and you didn't necessarily like it? That's the, that doesn't go far from being insubordinate. And um, for the ungodly, for sinners, of which we know we all are, for the unholy, the profane, for murderers of fathers, murderers of mothers, manslayers, fornicators and sodomites, it's all over your television. For if there's any other thing that's contrary to sound doctrine, all that any other stuff, anything that's not of the Lord. You know, the law is given so that we're without excuse before a holy God. And that's why we need the gospel, so that we're aware of our sin. Being broken by that fact, we call out for forgiveness. We believe on Jesus and we call on his name for salvation so that when we die, we are with him in the resurrection and eternal life with the Father. We have that peace of God because we have peace with God through his Son, through the blood that's on the cross, because he took our sin for himself. That's the sound doctrine of the gospel. That's it. He died, he rose again, was seen by many, and he ascended into heaven to be with the Father. And as we put our trust in him, when we go to be with him, we'll be with him in that resurrection. We'll be with him for eternity. These wannabe teachers of the law would bring you under their control like the Jews wanted to, you know, they were chasing Paul from town to town. We were talking about that. They were afraid they were going to lose their support base. They were afraid that they were going to lose their followers and they weren't going to have any more power or influence. There's going to be people who want to chase you down and say, no, you've got to do a little bit more. You cannot just believe in Jesus. You have to, there's got to be some, you've got to, you know, even take communion. That's not a religion or an obligation. It's something we do to remember. If we did it every other day or if we did it every other year, we do it to remember the Lord. It's not an obligation. It's not a religion. But all the other things that people do, um, more than anything, I would hope that the, the tone of the message is the same as this tone that Paul wanted to set and that's God's grace, God's mercy. You know, we don't get what we deserve. We do get what he gives us, his grace.
Um, and uh, that peace that we have with God, you know, and the peace that we have of God. So Paul intended, when he wrote to Timothy, to correct some of these things. And it's important for us to know that the gospel is the doctrine that we need to have, the teaching that we need to have. So let's pray. If you want to stand, we can pray, stretch our legs. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and mercy and your faithfulness to us to lead us um, in the things that you want us to do. And more than anything, Father, we want to be able to just understand that, that uh, it's all about love and the reason that these things are written is so that we might love you and that we might walk in your love. And so we just pray you go with us the rest of this day and the rest of this week and bring things to mind as you see fit. Whatever's of you would be remembered and whatever's not would be forgotten. Just ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.